just let me see a show of hands. Um, I know it was announced and it was in the bulletin and whatnot. How many of you read what our lesson is supposed to be tonight? Acts 28, verses 16 through 30, I think it is. One person read it. Okay. Two people read it. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I'm not. I'm, uh, this is not, I'm going to make you feel guilty type of a thing. We have to turn over our name. Go to jail for 20 days. Yeah. Do not pass go. Do not. Yeah. No, no. I, I, just, I just was wondering because um, when we get to, what we're supposed to study tonight, Paul's in Rome. Mm -hmm. But I want you to see what it takes to get him to Rome. Oh. That's, okay. that's really where I want you to be. Um, with your little handout, I've got here written a boatload of sovereignty got Paul to Rome. And I love what Arthur Pink says about the, a definition for sovereignty. He says, sovereignty is the exercise of his supremacy. So what got Paul to Rome was sovereignty. And I want us all to turn to Galatians 1.15, because we're going to see something very unique, and you're going to have Ephesians ready for me, okay? okay. Um, Galatians, everybody will get there before me. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. Galatians chapter 1, and Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 1, and we're look, going to look at verse 15. I want you to see something here. He talks about... Uh, in verses 11 down to verse 14, he talks about what his former life was a little bit. And then he comes to verse 15, and he says, But, remember, but is always a 180 transition. The only time I ever see your but is when you turn around and go the opposite way. We've got a transition here. Something has changed. He says, but... When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. And that's what I want you to see. He who set me apart before I was born. And the Greek, the literal Greek actually says, but he who set me apart from my mother's womb before he was ever born. What does Ephesians 1, 4 say, Courtney? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay. I wanted you to see something. Those people who are believers, we who are children of the king, he chose us before the foundation of the world before we were a twinkle in our daddy's eye, before we were ever born. I mean, that's, that's sovereignty. That is sovereignty. 
he talks about he talks about that and i just want you to realize something if you're a child of the king you've been chosen and we're no different than paul in that sense no different than paul and there's a few things let's let's go to um well we don't have to i can just i can just talk it through here um Let's, let's look at church rescue, because that's what I've got written down here. I've got, oh, I forgot to put a comma between the 23 and the 29. I apologize. Um, there were at least, at least these one, two, three, four, five times where there was a church rescue of Paul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 23, there was a plot to kill Paul in Damascus, or actually on, um, on his way to Damascus. He was going to be going. And they, what, what it tells us is that the church, the church community, the brothers and sisters, lowered him in a basket through a wall opening. And then we see in chapter 29... The Hellenists, those were Greek-speaking Jews. They weren't believers. They were just simply Jews that only spoke Greek. They were seeking to kill him. And it tells us the brothers and the sisters came and took him to Caesarea, which was a port city, um, a port city, and sent him off to Tarsus by boat. Said, you know, get going, get out of here. And then we come to... um, Chapter 14 and verse 5, and this is, this is a long, this is quite a, a, a lengthy one, but he fled from Lystra and Derby because he was told about a, um, about a plot to kill him. And so the brothers and sisters got him back uh, going in the other direction. And then in chapter... Um, Chapters, what have I got? 17, verse 10. He was sent off to Berea by night by the church brothers and sisters, knowing that the Thessalonian Jews were after him. So there's this idea of, uh, of uh, the church protecting him. The Lord, in his sovereignty, used his instruments to protect him. And... Um, in chapter 20, verse 3, he was in Greece. And we're not told exactly. It, it just says that a plot was made against him, so Paul took a different route. We don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, it's left kind of open. D- it doesn't say that the Lord spoke to him and said, they're coming after you. Take off this way. Don't go this way. Or if brothers and sisters, other believers, let him know about it. We don't know. So that I... You know, I just kind of feel like it was somebody telling him. So again, we've got this idea of, of the sovereignty of God protecting him, this, this boatload of sovereignty that just was around him. Now, there's a certain amount of human responsibility when you've got uh, sovereignty. And what happens is human responsibility is to display some common sense actions. Well, I'm going to te- I'm going to preach in Rome, so I'm just going to sit here, even if they come and try to get me. No, let's have some common sense. When the brothers and the sisters are saying, "We're going to help you. We're going to get you this way. We're going to take you out of harm's way," you know, um, there is that 
there's that realization here. That's being taught too. I truly believe that's being taught because that was what happened. The brothers and the sisters, when they got word of it, Paul didn't know about it. He didn't hear about it. It was they that heard about it, and it was they who came and made sure he was safety. Does that make sense? Okay, if it doesn't, you know, raise your hand, and we'll, I'll try to defend myself a little bit. All right, now I've also got the next thing, Roman rescue. Let me, let me um, say a little bit here. Roman rescue. 67 BC, Pompey was the Caesar or the ruler in Rome. And he declared Tarsus, he made uh, Tarsus the city of a Roman province of Sicilia. Um, he made it uh, the capital of that Roman province. And the Jews began to receive Roman citizenship that was granted to them. Then Antony, Mark Antony, yes, of Cleopatra, Mark Antony, he controlled those western provinces and he declared it to be a free city. And if you were a free city, in, and this was in 42 BC, so this was all, you know, somewhere in a 50, you know, 50, 60 to 100 years or whatever before Paul is involved here. Um, if you were a free city, uh, that meant that you were a Roman citizen, for one thing. And Tarsus was a city in Cilicia. It's like saying, I live in Livonia in the county of Wayne. You know what I'm getting at? Cilicia was just the area there. Um, he, he declared it to be a free city. And what we know from history, it became a cultural and an intellectual center. One of the three main, Athens, Alexandria, and Tarsus were free cities that were absolutely at the top scale of intellects. They had the, the, the you know, the, the intellectual pool. They, they had the, the brain trust. They were very, considered to be a very smart city. Alexandria and, had a very big library. Library, exactly. And Pompeii was uh, very instrumental in that situation. Um, so they, they became a great, great importance. Ephesus was also a Roman city, a Roman free city. Athens was a Roman free city. Thessalonica was a Roman free city. And Philippi, check this out, Philippi was even better than a Roman free city because Mark Antony's soldiers, it was like us going down to Florida. When they retired, they all went to Philippi. So Philippi became a Roman colony. It was elevated even more. And what cities did Paul travel to? Ephesus, Thessalonica, um, Athens, Philippi. I mean, do you see? I mean, being a Roman citizen. And by the way, uh, no, I'm going to say that a little bit later. Anyway, um, this is how he... Um, he, he, how he grew up in this free city. So, you know, there's one point, there's one point in the scripture, and I, I'm not sure, I, was it you that had it or maybe Becky that had it? Um, 
um, when Lysias started to flog him, was going. To, he says, "Would you do this to to a Roman citizen?" And it shocked him, and he backed up, and he talked to him, and he said, "How did you get to be a Roman citizen? I bought my way." Remember that? He said, I bought it. And Paul says, I'm one by birth, which that card trumped, trumped what he said. Um, so it absolutely was that. Now, as a child, Paul was raised in Jerusalem, properly educated under the tutelage of Gamaliel, which was a member of the Sanhedrin. So obviously, because Paul talks about being a son of a Pharisee, remember that from some of our lessons. Obviously, Paul's father moved to Jerusalem to get under the tutelage of Gamaliel to make sure probably, this is deology, probably to make sure that all of that Tarsus stuff, all the intellectual stuff there didn't rub off on his son that much. So he goes and he comes there. Um, Tarsus is also, we, we know that uh, Paul was a tent maker. Tarsus is also known for making a certain type of uh, felt from the uh, felt cloth from the wool of the shaggy black goats. So that, that's how it fits in with him being a tent maker. Now, here's something that bothered me. Becky, when, uh, uh, when Peter went off to China, he had to go get a visa, right? He had to go get a visa. When we've traveled over to um, uh, Canada or when we've taken some boat trips and uh, cruises and gone up to Alaska because you pass through, you know, the Canadian area or going down into um, Mexico, you have to get a passport. Now, some things are left out of being explained. And I think part of it is because I think they just assumed you understood this. Paul, or Dr. Luke, is writing to Theophilus. I think he must have just understood this. And, and I thought, how do you prove that you're a Roman citizen? Now, wouldn't that... Am I the only one that would question that? And then, you know, one of the things that popped up that as, as I was studying... <laughs> And I thought, oh, how stupid you are. Uh, they took a yearly Roman census. When, did you, when did, was Jesus born? After Daddy Joseph took Mama Mary up to, up to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem because of the census. And I thought, oh, yeah. Isn't that something? Well, there's the, the ways there were some papers that some people may have carried, but um, you had the census and you had your name. When Paul started his missionary journeys, he was not called Saul anymore. What was he called? Roman name, Paul. Exactly. And then you had the way you dressed. Um, that makes sense, doesn't it? And then the other thing was the associates. Who you know and who knows you, quite frankly. So it's, it's just, I, I don't know, to me, I just, I just find it really interesting that all of this is coming together and he doesn't have to 
prove anything with saying, see, here, here's my driver's license. It says, you know, Janet Day, you know, Livonia, Michigan. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be like that. But I will say one thing, that they had a tremendous, a tremendous amount, Roman citizens did, a tremendous amount of privileges in some ways because they could not be, nothing could happen to them if they were a Roman citizen. If it happened to them, like that one, the Lysias that was going to beat him, he would have ended up being beaten. It's what, what you do to a Roman citizen is going to be done to you if, you do, if, if you're in the wrong. Do, do, do you know what I'm, what I'm getting at here? Uh, a Roman citizen had privileges. Uh, they couldn't be tortured. They couldn't be whipped. If accused of treason, they had the right to be tried in Rome, which must also have witnesses for this charge, witnesses against them. So whatever, whatever was to be done to them was to be done very, very legally. It had to be done very legally. And we see <coughs> there was several different Roman rescues. Chapter 21, verse 39. If I don't know if you... Um, well, let's go ahead. Let's just look at chapter 21, verse 39. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whenever Paul is... Um, he. <laughs> yeah, the the um, the tribune took the soldiers, and as they were were taking him uh, away after this crowd was about to uh, was about to um, beat him up and had been you know mistreating him and everything, um, he, he took him away. And uh, Paul tells them this is part of. He says, "I'm a Jew from Tarsus," in verse thirty nine, in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I mean, it, it meant something when you said, I'm from Tarsus. I was born in Tarsus. It literally meant something. And you go down to verse 22 or chapter 22, verse uh, 3. Now, the, the tribune and the soldiers didn't understand this because he was talking to them uh, in the Hebrew language. He said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia brought up in the city, educated at feet of Gamaliel, according to our fathers. You know, he goes on like this. He makes a point, always makes a point of letting them know he's from Tarsus. He need, he, that was something that was very much in, in um, need for them to have. And you look at chapter 23, verse 23. Well, uh, this, um, this, this, it's uh, what what's what did, what do we say his name was? Um, can't think of his name. Felix. No, Lysias. Lysias, the tribune. There you go. The Lysias. Um, look at what he does in chapter twenty-three, verse twenty-three. He ordered two of the centurions, and centurions usually had about a hundred men under them, and he said, "Get ready." 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour. He was rescued from this mob by a tribune 
that sent him on his way with 470. A 470. And, and I think it's J. Vernon McGee that says, this shows what dire trouble he was in, or not trouble, but uh, uh, danger he was in. And it does, if you're going to send 470 soldiers with him. Now, there's been a little bit of back and forth about what is this seven, What is this last one with the 200 spearmen? Some, there's been some thought that that means it was just 200 um, uh, extra horses because it was a 40-mile journey. They would swap horses and you know, not expend the, the horses that long, which may have been the way it was. I don't know. But um, they send him to Felix the governor. And um, that, that, was, that was something. That was really something when you stop to think about it. These are the Romans. He's been saved by his own countrymen in situations he knew nothing about, dangers he knew nothing about. Here he knows about the dangers and look who steps in. Who steps in? It's the Romans. Now, we're. <laughs> my next point is off to Rome. And that's in Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. And now... We're going to spend a lot of time in Acts chapter 27 and on the island of Malta in 28 because I want you to see what Paul goes through. I want you to see what happens here. This is a sea voyage and it's called Dr. Luke's, I call it Dr. Luke's uh, um, daily, daily log and that's basically what it is. Three years earlier, Paul has written the book of Romans and he tells them, you know, I hope to come to see you. I want to see you. Three years earlier, this was written. Now, at this point, something that we need to understand is that Paul and Dr. Luke are very, right now, they're very seasoned travelers. Paul has traveled about 3,500 miles with his three missionary journeys. And much of that, well, I won't say much, but a good part of that has been on shipboard. He knows what navigation is. And Dr. Luke has been with him for about half of that time because we get to the we passages where he starts talking about we uh, sailed from here to here and we went. The, that starts in um, about not quite halfway of the second missionary journey in, in uh, chapter 16. So um, they are very, they are very, very seasoned travelers at this point. And what I want you to think of is this is uh, a detailed daily ship's log. And let's look at verse, uh, chapter 27. It says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, this idea being of the adjust, uh, uh, a centurion, he had about a hundred uh, soldiers under him. And it says he was the, of the Augustan cohort. That, that's the idea of he had, there were more 
um, other centurions in this area in in uh, Caesarea or Caesarea. Um, so they, there was different ones that were there. But it says that he was the one that was chosen to take him and some other prisoners. Now, these prisoners, most likely, according to what I have read on research, they were destined to be taken to the Colosseums. They were destined to be a part of some of the, well, you know, turning loose of the the, the bears and the lions and that sort of thing. So they were destined for death, basically. But it says they embarked in a ship of Admiritium. That's as good as you're going to get from me, which was about to sail to the long to the ports along the coast. And that's where your your um, your map kind of comes in. You see where they start out in Caesarea. They start out there. And it says, so uh, along the coast of Asia, and we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. (coughs) So as far as believers being on board, there was Paul, there was Dr. Luke, and there was Aristarchus, the one that was a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. You see where Sidon is there? And this is, I just have to say that, look at this sweet consideration. Julius, the centurion, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. How does that happen? How does that happen? Now, it's true that he is being treated as someone that... um, is not convicted yet or anything. But you you have to think that there's enough time spent with him that Julius has confidence that he's not going to run out. He knows him to be a man of honor. And I you know, this is this is just beautiful, I think. Julius treats him kindly and gives him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. Now, the time was absolutely against them. I want you to look at some. Well, let me say something about this this ship. Uh, Most likely it was a grain ship. Rome got all of its wheat grain from Egypt. And this most likely was just some sort of a a little a little grain ship that uh, um, was taking taking grains to different ports, but notice what it says here. Um, the time was really against them. Look at Acts twenty seven nine, the very first part. It says, since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, and this fast is talking about somewhere in October. October 16th or later, um, some some people, some Bible scholars have, you know, really set it down to being like, I think it was October 16th. Because when it talks about the fast, that's talking about the, um, not the Passover, but the atonement, the day of atonement, the fasting during the day of atonement. So 
the time of the year is bad. Look up, look up here at these other uh, verses. Look at verse 4. It says, putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Notice this, under the lee. That means under the protection of Cyprus. Cyprus was being used as a, um, a buffer. It was, um, instead of going on the other side of Cyprus, they went under Cyprus because of the tremendous winds. And it says again, look at... Um, Uh, we sailed slowly, verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus as the wind would not not allow us to go further. We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome, coasting along with it with difficulty. We had to come to a place called Fair Havens near which was the city of Lycia. So this was a very dangerous thing to start off with. I mean, Everything was against them when it comes right, un, right out of it. Everything was against them. And one of the things that I think is really remarkable, and maybe, maybe it's just me, but Dr. Luke knew the terminology. He understood the terminology. He understood what was going on. He understood what was going on. Um, a centurion was, a, like I had said, a commander of 100 men. He was paid very well, usually five times the amount of any ordinary soldier. Um, so he was, he was top dog, and he was trying to do his duty. We've got to get him to Italy. You know, I mean, he's trying to do the, do the right thing here. But notice in verse 9, at the end, uh, it says, Paul advised them, verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul had said, which, you know, we look at this and we say, Paul, you ought to listen to Paul. But all this time, God was taking care. I mean, we're still in this boatload of sovereignty here. Paul even was kind of talking against himself because he knew he was going to go and, and, and pre- he had been told he was going to, to preach in Rome. But anyway, in verse 12 it says, and because the harbor wasn't suitable to spend the winter and the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both the southwest and northwest, and spend winter there. Now, we come to the storm at sea. <laughs> and this is, this, is the, the, this is the first ship. Verses 1 and 2, we find, is the first ship. It's a small coastal vessel. They pick it up at Caesarea. Verse 6 ends up being the second ship, and they sail off to Italy on that. And it probably was a grain ship, too. That was verse 6. That was verse 6, where there was a centurion. He found, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing to Italy. So they've already made two, 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 uh, two swip swaps. They've already gone through two of them. Now, this shirt uh, was most likely a grain ship. And um, we have this storm at sea, 
Let's look at this storm. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeasterner. And ESV uses the word northeasterner, but if you were to look at the King James, it calls it um, Ereclidon. Yeah, Ereclidon, which means a northeasterner, a strong, tempestuous wind. And I think that's even amazing because Dr. Luke has this knowledge. He just has this, uh, you know, he knows this. He knows what it's called. But he said... And he's a doctor. Yeah, and he's, and he's a doctor. But he's such a historian that, uh, you know, when we, when we first studied... Uh, back in in, in the uh, fall, that very first lesson, we saw that he was such a detailed historian that he he uh, when he reports, he reports eyewitness facts and he does it with precision. It's not, you know, it's not just oh we'll just call it this because I that's what it looks like. No, that's what it's called because that's what everybody has called it. Uh, he's very defined, definite about that. But notice what happens here. It says that, and when the ship, verse 15, was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. Again, under the lee on this side of, the, of Cauda so as to use it as a brace. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, somehow, I don't know what this is, I can't tell you, but somehow they would run cable underneath and kind of like you hold things together, you know, like when you're trying to um, keep, keep everything together, you would use a bungee to, to hold it together. That's what they did, basically. And it, it says that they managed with difficulty to, sh- to, to secure this ship's boat, which was the little dinghy behind it. We were, um, they lo- then fearing that they would run into, run uh, aground, they lowered the gear, thus they were driven along, caught in a violent storm, tossed, began the next day to jettison the cargo. That means they started throwing things off board. So it wouldn't be held. To me, that sounds weird. I think the more weight you've got, it ought to be better. But the sailing, that was what they did in those days. They began to throw things off board. On the third day, they throw through the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So evidently, normally, ship's tackle must be lifted out somehow with some sort of a device but they were so scared they were doing it with their own hands. And notice what verse 20 says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. No sun, no stars. They didn't have compasses. They didn't have sextants. They looked at the sun And they looked at the constellations, the stars, and that's how they knew how to navigate. Now, I know there is one, and it may be King James, I'm not sure. There's one one thing that says, when we got our compass, it didn't mean the compass like we're talking about. It means they compassed, they encircled, they went around, they went around. Uh, That's what it means, like encompass, rather than 
a compass. So don't let that, if you've got a King James, don't let that bother you. So what we see, and I think I've put, hasn't, haven't I, didn't I put that down? Yeah. All right. Paul has a, in verses 21 through 26, he calls them to courage. Look at what he says. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship for this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord or the angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and be cold. God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But we must run aground on some island. So he encourages them. Can't you imagine? Now we've got, uh, what? We've got at least 270 some people here. We're going to actually, I think, at some point see that number. And you've got Dr. Luke, and you've got Paul, and you've got um, Aristarchus. They must have been talking and singing and praying. I can't imagine that they wouldn't have been. It was Paul. He who spoke the gospel so freely. But he obviously wasn't obnoxious. Do you know what I'm getting at? He did it with meekness and humility, but faithfulness. But he tells him, take heart. And in the King James, I think, um, what does your King James say? What does, let me, let me see if I can think of what, because I like the phraseology. Take heart. Uh, stand firm. Uh, Maybe that was it. Yeah, but it, it was it was it was um, it was a word for encouragement. Take heart uh, and um, stand safe. So I'm, I'm, no, yeah, but that's what he says. Yes, and I, I and I appreciate that. I just I'm just old and can't think of things. Okay, so we are at verse twenty-seven now. When the 14th night, now, every other time to get to this point from where they started out in Caesarea should have taken one day, Wow! one day, or at least if it wasn't Caesarea from Sidon, should have taken one day. But we know they're on the, the 14th night, so, I mean, it was at... 14 days anyway, it said, and we, uh, when we had come, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight. The sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. And a little further on, they took another sounding. And we think about soundings. It, <laughs> there was no sonar. There was no radar. What they would do was fill um, a tube with a, a wax, and they would send it down. And once it hit bottom, they'd bring it back up. And 
if it was rocks, they knew they were on rocks. And if there was sand there, they knew they were on sand. That's how they knew it. That's how they knew they were getting closer. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, they took a sounding again. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And notice what happens here. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, the little dinghy, you know, the rowboat, into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. They were trying to escape. If they had done that, whoa, nobody to run the boat. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. So Paul called them to courage. Paul prevents any type of desertion by letting them know what's going on. And then he, he um, urges them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when they had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. So he blesses the food for nourishment. Look at verse 36. Then all, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat. Now, the question is, they hadn't eaten for 14 days. Most likely, they were fasting, fasting to their God. Jews were not the only ones that fasted. There was lots of fasting. If you had a God, you fasted and prayed for him to bring you good luck, this type of a thing. Uh, Prayed for him to take you out of this this mess, you know. Um, It says we were in all 276. And it says they were encouraged and they ate some food themselves. So they lightened the ship, threw the wheat into the sea, Now, verse 39, and uh, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they had planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. They hoisted the foresail to the wind, and they made for the beach. But striking a reef... um, or a sandbank, most likely, or a cross current, but a sandbank properly. They ran the vessel aground, and the the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, because if any of the prisoners escaped, you know what would happen to the soldiers? They would take the place of the prisoners in the Colosseum games, and in uh, all those things. So they were going to 
kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But look at the centurion again. Wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on the planks or on the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely. All were brought safely to the land. Hmm. All right. The next thing I've got is us on the island of Malta. So we start with verse 1 in chapter 28. It says, After we, and again, you know, this is Dr. Luke writing all this down. He's being the, he's being the log keeper. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Now, in the King James, the native people are called the barbarians. And barbarian was a name that was given by the Romans to people who only spoke their native language and didn't speak Greek. Yes, they were considered barbarian. Um, That's how they, I I think maybe even some of the translations say Phoenicians, but but it's the idea of, the the idea of them being barbarians wasn't that they wouldn't, like, you know, some missionaries you hear about that run around and eat, eat, uh, eat the flesh of people and that. No, they were, that simply meant that they only spoke their language and not the Greek language. But it says what they showed them an unusual kindness and welcomed all of them because it had begun to rain and was cold. And notice this. I want you to see how Paul, he jumps in. He does not have any, I'm Paul. So everybody else has got to do the work. He jumps in. Look what it says. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, I mean, he was there trying to make the fire better, make it, make it better for everyone. They were soaked to their skin. He says, it says that uh, all of a sudden um, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, Oh, no doubt this man's a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And justice would have been uh, like uh, the Greek, uh, I don't even know what the Greek god is, but I think it's Dike, but I'm not positive. The the one that, uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh. <laughs> oh, justice. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Justice just hit. You got the Greek God wrong. Yeah, that's right. I got the Greek God wrong. But uh, all of a sudden they thought, oh, he must be a bad guy, you know. So, uh, and, and he escaped from the sea. And it says, however, he just shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited for a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds. And now they're saying, oh, he's a God, <laughs> small g. And Dr. Luke records this as a true miracle. He was. 
Yes, absolutely. He records this as a true miracle. Now, verse 7, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Publius was there. So he was a chieftain. You know, he was one of the head men. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when he had taken, uh, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and they were cured. Hmm. You see, preaching the gospel is verified by miracles. So whatever he was going to preach there, was going to be verified by the miracles that he could do. And notice this, Dr. Luke, he says it's um, he, uh, Malta fever. It's, there, there's something called Malta fever. And he, he, he tells exactly what it is. Um, he tells him exactly what this, this uh, Malta fever is. And uh, probably, as Dr. Luke is with Paul, he may be doing some of his healing too. He may be doing what he knows as a doctor too. I don't know. That's, you know, that's up, that's up in the air. But at any rate, uh, I think this is, I think that's really, I think that's really neat. Now notice what happened. It says in verse 10, they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed whatever they needed. Everything was lost at sea. Remember that. So any food, any clothing, anything that was needed for the journey, Publius and the islanders honored them by doing that. You know how long they stayed in Malta? Look at verse 11. After three months... They stayed there three months. We set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. (laughs) With the twin gods as the figurehead. This is their third ship, and it likely was a grain ship also because this was just the, the thing. When, when they stop in Puti, I think it's Putioli that comes up first, um, when they come, that was a principal uh, port for the wheat trade. So it most likely was a grain ship also. But notice what it says here, that on this ship that they're on, there were twin gods as a figurehead. Now, these were uh, the gods Castor and Pollux, and they were supposed to be the, the gods of the mariners. They were supposed to bring great luck to the mariners. Well, (laughs) I'm not so sure about that. But at any rate, um, verse 12, it says, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. I think this is where it says we had a compass. I think this is where it says something. We took a compass and arrived at Regium. And it meant they made a circuit, a circle around. And after... 
One day, a south wind sprang up, and on the <clears throat> second day, we came to Puteoli. And as I said, that was a major port. That was a major port uh, for the grain, uh, for the grain uh, ships to come. And I want you to read this. Look at this. This is so sweet. There in Puteoli, we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Here's another kindness of the centurion. He trusted Luke. He trusted Paul. He trusted Aristarchus so much that he allowed them to be there. Now, there is some suggestion that possibly he was waiting for further orders. Maybe so, but he did not forbid them to be with the brothers and sisters. There we found the brothers and sisters and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Now, let's talk about that. And so we came to Rome. Rome is still 130 miles away. So it's a little premature, but I think the whole point is, you know, that saying all roads lead to Rome. <laughs> I mean, they were, uh, they were practically there and it was a little premature. You know, I get that, but it's that idea uh, of being able to do that. But look at what it says. So we came to Rome and the brothers there and, and the brothers there, when, we heard, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three te- uh, taverns to meet us. So there was some brothers that came about 43 miles, and there was another set of brothers that came 10 miles further than that that came to meet them. And look at this. This is beautiful. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. That's our role with our brothers and sisters in Christ is to be so encouraging to them that they can say that after they've left us. Wow, this was a great experience. I needed that. The Lord used these brothers and sisters. Now you say, how did, how did some Christians get to Rome? Remember what Becky taught when she taught about the Holy Spirit, about the, the, the tongues of fire, and about how uh, those that had come to Jerusalem to worship had heard in their own language the gospel and the good things of God, the good things of Christ, and they went back? Well, that may be one way. That certainly may be one way, but there were believers in Rome already. They were already there. And when they met Paul, oh, Paul was encouraged. And notice what it says in verse 16. And when we came into Rome, so now they are into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, 
Though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me free because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with this, or for with regard to this sect, we know that everything, wait a minute, is is spoken against. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So he gets to Rome. And Rome has been called the mistress of the, of the world, the eternal city, the hub of the universe. We had a neighbor in Arizona that when he would hear things that were exaggerated and, you know, this is the best, and then he'd say, boy, they're pretty proud of themselves, aren't they? And, that's, and they were, and they absolutely were. Um, Juvenal was a Roman, not a little kid. He was a Roman. His name was Juvenal, and he was a satirist. And he said that Rome uh, was given to bread and circuses. Now, when we think of circuses, we think of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. Circuses was entertainment. It was like the Colosseum entertainment, that sort of thing. Um, But the Roman historian Tacitus said that at this time in Rome, they weren't against, they they weren't against Christians. There was not any bad feelings about Christians. So I I just set that up for you to to think about that. Um, We go on to verse 23 where it says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. So there was a lot of Jews that made an appointment with him. A lot came. He said, we'd like to hear about this. And it says, and when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, so we're not talking about a hour and a half Bible study. We're talking an all day long situation. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And the disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they have barely, they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I 
would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And if you want to know, this is kind of condensed. If you want to know what he taught them from day, uh, all day long, it's just a little bit of condensation there. Why don't you go to Acts chapter 3, where Paul and Barnabas are talking. We don't have to. I'm just saying uh, it, it was, um, wasn't it Acts chapter 13? I said 3. I meant Acts chapter 13. Uh, he was with Paul and Barnabas. And uh, you'll see what happened. You'll see what, what he was teaching. You'll see how he was teaching. And you'll see what had happened. Now notice what it says here. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. If you were Gentiles, do you know what he said to you? Go to Acts chapter 17 and see what he said to the Athenians, what he said to the think tank there in Athens and how he brought the gospel to him, to them. That's my idea. That's what I think he did. But it said he lived there two whole years proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Without hindrance means that no one forbidden him. His hand was bound, but his mouth was open. The military didn't ban his speech. He had on one hand, he had a soldier that was chained to him. And every four hours, they would change shifts. Shifts. <laughs> so he had six different soldiers. Was it the same six? I don't know. But you can bet they heard the gospel. You can bet that. Now, I have the ESV. And in between the ESV, you'll notice that there's chapter, verse 28. And it jumps right down to verse 30. Some manuscripts, this is the footnote, add verse 29. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. After he had said, I'm taking it to the Gentiles because they're going to listen. So I don't know. But uh, um, there is some conjecture, okay, just some conjecture here, that um, he may have been staying at Priscilla and Aquila's house. But it said he lived at his own expense or in his own hired dwelling. And there's a very good likelihood that he did some kind of work because he was not one with just have his hand out. He, you, he lived by example and he said that very specifically. He said that, first of all, I, I remember reading it to the Corinthians, and he, then he had, uh, somebody else he had said it to the Thessalonians, I think, that, uh, uh, you know, you don't, don't expect handouts. He says, I didn't come to you wanting silver and gold. And, and it's like here. Uh, so, but instead of focusing on his restrictions, Paul saw opportunity. He saw a universe of humanity at his restricted sphere. I mean, it was just, it was all right there. John Stott said his faith was the faith of his fathers 
and the gospel was the fulfillment of the law. And above all, he knew that his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was with him and would keep his promise that he would bear witness someday, somehow, in Rome. And, amen, that's right. And if if you noticed, I, I, I have a quote here from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. It says, Faith is holding on to the faithfulness of God. And as long as you do that, you cannot go wrong. Faith does not look at who's exercising it. Faith looks at God. Faith is interested in God only. And it talks about God and it praises God and extols the virtues of God. The measure of the strength of a man's faith always is ultimately the measure of his knowledge of God. He knows God so well that he can rest on the knowledge. And those of you that like music, there you are. City of Light in the darkness.